We're kind of captured by the beautiful, aren't we, as a race of people? We are drawn to beauty. Almost against our wills, we are drawn to beauty. And I think in the West, we've got a problem to a degree because beauty doesn't really always deliver what we feel that it should deliver. And to kind of illustrate that, I'd like you to think of perhaps the most iconic American female beauty. If I said, who are the iconic American female beauties, what are some names that might come to mind? Marilyn Monroe. is the first one that came out of the box, right? Katie Eglesire, I know, that came up too. Um, but, but Marilyn Monroe is one of those icons. I mean, she died in her mid-30s, so she never gets old in our imaginations, right? And it looks like she should have had it all. But there's a tragic nature about her beauty. Because we all know how she died. And whether you think she was killed or whether you think she overdosed herself, it's a tragedy, is it not? Because here's a woman who should have had it all. Should have had love and devotion, loyalty. She had fame. She had money. She had celebrity. But... The way she died, the fact that she died so young and that was, she was such a troubled person who was married several times, couldn't really seem to find a lasting relationship, uh, seemed to be used by men and enjoy trying to use men at the same time. I mean, you're going, just, you know, there's just something wrong with that, you know? That shouldn't be the outcome of great beauty. Most addictions come from something that appears beautiful. Most addictions come from something that appears beautiful. The obvious one would be pornography, right? There is the allure of beauty of the feminine form that draws especially men into it very often it becomes an addictive behavior that then becomes destructive and does not follow through on the promises that it gives of satisfaction of women you can control with the click of a button of even physical release it just becomes a downward cycle that ends up in despair. Or think about an alcohol or a drug addiction. There is the promise, and there actually is somewhat of a delivery of joy, of euphoria for a time. It's a beautiful thing. Some people who are normally introverted, when they are drunk, they are the most sociable people on the planet. They have rip-roaring times at parties. 
But the end of that addiction leaves them drinking alone at home and getting more and more depressed. The same with drug addictions. Then there is the beauty of the secret love affair. You know, there's a mystery about it. There's something tantalizing about its forbidden nature. You know, the fact that you've got to sneak around because one of the or both of the people are married gives it this delicious quality that maybe the marriage no longer has. There's a promise of something beautiful. I've been told by guys who have been in affairs, I could be a boy again. I could play. I can't play in my marriage. I can't play at home. There's too many responsibilities. We get into too many fights. But it's a false love. And it leads to destruction. Kind of reminds you of the movie that just came out, right? The Precious. We were first introduced to Gollum in The Hobbit. And it's already begun to work its false preciousness upon him by the time Bilbo meets him. So what's the cure for this? And, and this is going to blow your minds. The cure for this must come from something that appears more beautiful than the addiction. There's got to be something that draws the drug addict or the alcoholic or the sex addict or the person caught in an affair. There's got to be something that bedazzles them in a way that those things do not, that captures their attention, that draws them not only to itself but beyond itself to goodness and to truth. I know some alcoholics who are just mesmerized by the beauty of the thought of a sober saint of God. Someone doesn't need alcohol. I know people who have stopped affairs because of the beauty they see in the bloody, broken body of Jesus. It's their devotion to Jesus and the beauty they see in that that has led them to a truer love and that leads them to break it off and go back and work on the marriage. And I've heard of, I've read of pagans, magicians, astrologers who were adept at charting the stars and horoscopes who were led away from that false religion by the beauty of a star. And so we're going to read today the story of the three wise men as they've been come they've come to be, be called. You'll find it up on the wall.
Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I don't know if you understand the scandal that is the first couple verses of this chapter in Matthew. There was a movie back when I was in college called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And it was about this very kind of white bread, upper middle class family whose daughter falls in love with a black guy, an African American, and brings him home to supper. And how the parents have to deal with this. Like, what are we going to do? This may be more shocking to a Jewish or Hebrew mindset. Because what you basically have is not only foreigners from Babylon, but you have these people, these idolaters. These people who worshipped the stars. These learned men from, and, and they see something rise in the heavens and they have an idea that it has something to do with a new ruler who was born in Jerusalem. Now we're not sure how they figured out it was from the Jews. It could have been from the writings of the prophet Daniel from centuries before because he was one of the captives in Babylon and was one of the Magi, actually, and did a lot of writing and was one of the king's most trusted advisors, and maybe he left some things behind. But over through the whole known world, there was this looking out for some new super ruler who was supposed to appear. And so they see this star, this star of wonder, the star of night, the star with Royal beauty bright. That's not in the Bible, by the way. But it encaptures them. The beauty of the star enthralls them, and it causes them to go on a journey to find what's behind it. This is the job of transcendent beauty, is to point us in a transcendent direction toward ultimate reality. Next verse. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Now, this is irony. The pagans are excited about the Jewish king, and the Jews are disturbed. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Next slide. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
So, the Jews have specific revelation, right? They know exactly that there's a Messiah coming. They know exactly where he is to be born. They know exactly the line he's supposed to come from. The Magi, the magicians, just have general revelation. They have a star, right? And kind of philosophical and religious hearsay, perhaps. And you put those two together, and what happens? They know exactly where to find ultimate truth, ultimate goodness. It's amazing. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now you know the story. He's not going to go worship him. He found out the time of the stars so he could figure out how old the baby might have been and then go kill all the babies in Bethlehem of Judea who may have been born anywhere close to that. The evil that happened in Connecticut has been going on for millennia. Millennia. And Herod sent his soldiers to kill all the babies in that village. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is where the story gets really interesting, I think, if you're an astrologer. Because the star moves. I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know how some kind of nebulous ball of burning gases somewhere in the universe all of a sudden moves directly over a house in Bethlehem. By the way, the Greek is a house. They're not in the stable at this point. And the baby is not a baby, but it's a child. The Greek is very specific. It's a child, and it's a house, which means that probably the Magi came sometime later. Jesus wasn't a baby anymore. He was a child. And 
They were in a house, so my guess is, you know, they see the star rise when the kid's born and start off. How long does it take to get to Jerusalem from Babylon on a camel? I don't know. He could have been as much as two years old, depending on how long it takes him to get provisions and figure out the way and get a cohort of people to protect him because they're carrying pretty valuable stuff. So here's my advice to you who set up nativity scenes in your home. Set up the shepherds and the sheep and Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the angels all right there on your coffee table. That's fine. But the wise men, the magi, take them and put them in the corner of the room in the house because they are on their way. All right? And you'll be more historically accurate than... The nativity scenes that have, you know, a stormtrooper and a droid and a Wookiee, okay? All right. It's just amazing to me that a thing of beauty could provoke this kind of activity on the part of these magi. But then I think about life, and I'm going, you know, maybe it's not so odd that God has created us in such a way that beauty stirs us. It stirs a a man, perhaps, to leave a life of bachelorhood and propose to his girlfriend. It may cause a brilliant doctor in old Russia to spend his evenings crafting plays. The great Anton Chekhov, one of the foremost playwrights in the history of the Western world, was a doctor by trade. But he couldn't stop from spending his nights and his days off writing and writing because the beauty enthralled him. How the beauty of the risen Lord can cause a little tiny woman we now know as Mother Teresa to leave her life behind and go minister to the dying in Calcutta, India, because in them she sees her beautiful Savior. And she wants to minister to him. And by doing so, to the least of these, she does so unto him. I think sometimes when we look at things that are beautiful, it always leads us beyond itself to God. The things that I love the best about my wife are the things that in some unique way are like the one who made her. If you know Mary, you know that 
There may be nobody as merciful that you've ever met who reflects the mercy of God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's just like that with some people, isn't it? That we see reflected in them a piece of the beauty of the transcendent God. Beauty is always directional. We are a church full of artists and musicians and actors and potters and sculptors and writers and poets and filmmakers and photographers, etc., etc., etc. We understand something about art. But here's the truth, is that a work of art doesn't invent truth but it makes truth accessible in new and different ways. Art fails when it merely tells us what we already know in ways that we already know it. Great art is not merely about art itself. It's about something transcendent. And it's certainly not about the money you make by creating art. That just becomes laughable. True artists snub their noses at artists who have given in to the commercial exclusively. I mean, we all know we have to eat somehow, right, and pay the rent. But someone who has just figured out how to crank it out for money's sake is not respected. Why? Because art should be about something bigger, about truth and about goodness. And it should lead us in that direction. We must seek beauty and participate in it. We need to be able to go where beauty leads us, like the star led the Magi. Now we understand sleep when we're awake. We can't understand sleeping when we're sleeping. And we understand drunkenness when we're sober. We don't understand drunkenness when we're drunk. And we understand beauty, and we understand truth, and we understand goodness as we are actively pursuing beauty, acting on truth, and being good. Not when we are lying to someone. Not when we're in the middle of a house of lies do we understand truth. We don't understand beauty when we are in the middle of being ugly or goodness when we're being bad. Beauty is a secret that God has shared with us. Seriously, think about this. Beauty is a secret that God has shared with us. I don't know if animals appreciate beauty. They appreciate a meal. They appreciate the ability to run outside. But we appreciate a sunset, which, if you think about it from our Darwinian point of view, if we were created, I'm sorry, if we evolved 
it seems to me that appreciating sunsets would be one of those things that gets you killed or eaten because you're taking your eyes off of the dangers that might be around. I don't understand how evolution produces an aesthetic of beauty and appreciation of it. It seems to me to be a much more practical way of thinking. Now, the beauty of God is experienced through our senses, right? I mean, we have no other way of experiencing the beauty of God. And, and here's the transcendent piece. We can experience the beauty of God through our senses, and eventually it leads us to a beauty that is beyond our senses, a beauty that is beyond nature, a beauty that is supernatural. So when you go to the mountains, and you are on a hike, and you come around a rock, and all of a sudden this vista of a landscape with one, two, three, four, five depths of field is spread out before you in the valley below with a silver stream glimmering in the setting sunlight. And you stop and you stare. Do you just sit there and go, wow, this is really cool? Or do you let it take you where, I'll personify it, where it wants to take you? To the artist himself. When we look at Van Gogh paintings, right, and we think they're amazing, the wheat fields are so moving, and, you know, his, his colors are so vivid, and there's so much emotion in every brushstroke. And, you know, it's wonderful to behold a Van Gogh or two, like I did when I was back in Toledo at the Museum of Art. But to know Van Gogh, that would be awesome. That would be incredible. And we are being invited in by the artist whose palette is the spectrum of light and whose canvas is the universe we live in. There is music in the spheres. I don't know if you've, they've done these studies, radio waves coming off of different stars and nebula and things like that, and there's a syncopated rhythm. It's amazing. They've taken the, the songs of crickets. You guys heard this on YouTube? and they've slowed them way, way down, it sounds like angels singing. It's incredible. You ever take a look at, like, microscopic photographs of an ant's eye or mold growing on of an orange? You're going, it's beautiful. Who knew that God's artistic endeavors, the beauty that he 
speaks out into the world day and night without words to draw us to himself is so minute and so vast all at the same time. But we can't stop with the beauty because beauty begins to wither when we worship it. It's kind of like if there's a road sign that says two miles of the Continental Divide, as you're hiking along and you stop at the road sign and you begin to worship the road sign, and you revel in the beauty of the road sign. And the road sign is pointing and saying, no, two miles down the road, you're going to see something that you've never seen before. Beauty is like that. It points beyond itself. And here's the deal. When we don't put beauty first, when we put what is first first, which is the Lord who made it, then we get the beauty thrown in. But if we put the beauty first, and the Lord second, we get neither. Because God will not allow himself to be trifled with. He is a jealous God. And he will have no other gods before him. Maybe you've heard that before. And I think our appreciation of beauty is as varied and as vast as the number of people who have ever lived on the planet. Think about this for a minute. This is from C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, his chapter on heaven. This is what he says. Each of the redeemed shall forever know and praise some one aspect of the divine beauty better than any other creature can. Why were individuals created? But that God, loving all infinitely, should love each differently. Read that again. Each of the redeemed shall forever know and praise some one aspect of the divine beauty better than any other creature can. Why were individuals created? But that God, loving all infinitely, should love each differently. We've been going over the great transcendental virtues so far this Advent. We started with truth, we went on to goodness, and we are now on to beauty. Next week we're talking about the basis for all of those, which we believe is grace. I have uh, devotions available over here at the Scoop in this Advent guide that was created by some friends of mine and myself. Week three is about beauty. If you want to go home and have some private devotional time, I would suggest this for one dollar. I mean, as I said last week, you can't buy a Hallmark card for a dollar. But these three, truth, goodness, and beauty, work in conjunction with one another. They're kind of like a triad of, of the eternal virtues that are in God in infinite measure. God is infinite truth. He is infinite goodness. He is infinite beauty. And you got to have all three. Because truth without beauty is just a set of propositions. 
It's propositional truth. Only beauty, says Gregory Wolf, can incarnate truth in concrete, believable human flesh. And then goodness without beauty, it's just moralism. It's holier-than-thou kinds of stuff. But beauty without goodness is frigid. It's lifeless. It can be pure virtuosity. You guys ever go uh, to a concert where the singer hit every note perfectly, but you'd rather hear Bob Dylan scratch it out? Because he sings with some kind of passion and some kind of beauty that is not present in just the notes. Or go on to a concert where you've got this guitar player who is showing off how fast he is up and down the neck. And you're going, give me a slow hand. Give me a bend of a note. Give me something that speaks of some kind of experience. It's, it's, it's virtuosity. It's, it's, it's beauty, but it... But it lacks some kind of goodness to it, you know? Otherwise, we would think paint by number is beautiful. It's just not good. I think a deeper appreciation of beauty came with Christianity. And... This sculpture behind me is testimony to that. This is a depiction of a cross, an instrument of torture. We may as well have had an electric chair hanging on the wall behind me, or a waterboard, or a giant hypodermic needle filled with poison. The kind used in lethal ejections. And yet, Christians for centuries have looked at the cross as a thing of beauty. So much so that they decorate them and every piece up there has a meaning. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, beauty has taken on the form of sacrifice and brokenness. Truth and goodness are forever bound now with beauty. There are pieces of pottery that came from different homes here at Scum of the Earth. There are bicycle parts there are little trinkets that were shoplifted from a store given by the person who didn't want to shoplift anymore because of finding something more beautiful than the trinkets that were shoplifted, namely a Savior. Because beauty is seen in the broken body of Jesus. And here's the wow factor, I think. In heaven, 
the body of Jesus still bears the scars of the cross, according to what we read in the Scriptures. Why would that be? So beauty leads us to God. That's its job. And here is another miracle. Once we are with God and we understand the nature of God, His goodness and His truth, guess what? God will lead us to appreciate beauty in the most broken places we can imagine. So it becomes this wonderful circle. The star leads the wise men to God himself swaddled and lying in a manger. But that baby, once grown, once crucified and resurrected, will then lead them to see the beauty in all things. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this season of the year when we can stop and we can reflect on all sorts of truth and beauty and goodness and grace. Keep our minds focused on the beauty of the Incarnation when you left heaven and became one of us so that you could take us back to heaven to be with you always. How beautiful was that? In Christ's name, amen.